This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. G'day Diplomates fans, I'm Misha. Now, with so much happening in the world right now, I thought, who better to get on the show to help us unpack all the big issues other than my good friend, Hagar Shamali. Hagar and I have a chinwag about Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine, particularly we take a look at what's happening right now inside of Russia and Putin's big crackdown there. We talk about the US intelligence leaks and what they tell us about the state of geopolitics and why they matter going forward. Then we talk about Sudan and whether or not the prospect of a civil war in Sudan might spill over into a broader regional conflict or indeed a geopolitically significant struggle. We also talk about Macron's big trip to China and what that tells us about tensions surrounding Taiwan and China's war games and intentions perhaps to invade later this decade. Big episode as ever. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're new to the show, please do rate, review, share us. It really does help. But apart from that, enjoy the episode. Hagar Shamali, welcome back to Diplomates. So good to see you, mate. How are you? I'm good, Misha Zielinski. It's good to be on. Good to see your face. Now, where to begin? I thought... You know, obviously always talk about the ongoing invasion of Ukraine by Russia, but I thought with so much going on domestically in Russia at the moment, we could talk a little bit about that. So obviously we had the arrest of Evan from the Wall Street Journal, you know, a foreign journalist being arrested, an American foreign journalist, extraordinary situation. And then recently we also just had the arrest, well, it's not the arrest, the sentencing of political dissident, democracy activist, friend of this podcast, Vladimir Karamutsa uh, has been sentenced to 25 years in prison. So what do you make, I suppose, of these latest things that have happened and what does it tell us about inside Russia right now rather than so much outside? To me, I view this effort to crack down further and certainly to also to basically capture this American foreign journalist, Evan Gershkovich, uh, from the Wall Street Journal, as an effort to frighten everybody and to also increase bargaining chips for future negotiations. So, and, and maybe we should split them up a little bit, but um, we'll start with Evan Gershkovich and that move, first of all, to be honest with you, and this may sound naive, I was surprised, even though I knew there were a handful, a number of reporters who remain inside Russia. I know personally, for example, I listen just recently on the New York Times podcast to Anton Troyanovsky, who's still there. Um, and, you know, but I wasn't, I wasn't putting two and two together. And when I saw Evan Gershkovich get detained and charged with espionage, which we all know is, is, is practically a death sentence in Russia that's you know, you could be in prison for up to 20 years. And that's not even, it's really neither here nor there. He's really a bargaining chip. But when I saw that at first, my first thought was, oh my God, I had no idea there were still such prominent reporters still, and on top of it, that are tied to outlets that Russia or the Russian regime, at least, is going to have a problem with. And so it's a clear effort that they don't have Brittany Griner anymore who was very well known. They have Paul Whelan, who uh, for for the United States, as I mean, for US uh, citizens who are detained in Russia, they have former Marine Paul Whelan. He's a businessman who was detained a while ago, years ago. But 
he's not a publicly pro, uh, he doesn't have a high profile public personality. And so to me, it looked like they were looking for the next best thing that they could find somebody who had a public persona, someone where there was going to be an outcry after that and an outcry that was very organized. And so a journalist is a perfect target for that. Uh, it's, you know, and it just, it sets, I don't know how other journalists are feeling right now. I, I, I was surprised to see how many of them attended his, uh, it wasn't a hearing. It was, I guess it was a hearing. It wasn't a trial where he was charged officially and denied bail. Um, that, that happened last week. And there were a number of reporters who are his colleagues who were there and who saw him and, you know, and he waved to them and he looked like he was in good spirits. But my point in saying was all this to say, on one hand, I was surprised that they were there, but on the other, it's a clear effort to create another bargaining chip for future negotiations or to get something more in this case, specifically out of the United States. It's, you know, we live in this era of hostage diplomacy, which is just a shame. And on Vladimir Karamutsa, who, by the way, I would also add has been quite a personal inspiration to me. Um, he's just you know, for listeners, has bit, has worked as an activist and and journalist for decades, and has been a very vocal critic against Putin, um, and fighting for democracy in in Russia, and has called on Putin to step down, and has been a thorn in Putin's side. But even he said in his final statement, and I would urge everybody to read it. It's online. If you look up his final statement at his hearing, he explained how. Even under the Soviet era, nobody, no dissident had been tried the way he was. None had been delivered a sentence of 25 years. That is a message from Putin to everyone of saying, you know, for him at least, it's the fun is over. He is cracking down even further. And it goes in tandem with how he seems to view Ukraine, where we expect in an upcoming spring offensive. Um, and so, right, he just visited Kherson, Putin, at least, uh, if it's not a body double, apparently, but right. So it, well, it actually right. all goes together. It's even though it's internal, it really goes uh, hand in hand with his view of doubling down in general. That's how I thought. Yeah. How, what about you? Well, well, it's interesting. I mean, I think it also shows that there's no more assumption that there's going to be normalization of relations. You know, once they're starting to arrest journalists, high-profile journalists, Wall Street Journal journalists. Um, that's a big step. Mm-hmm. It's a big step. And I think um, we've seen crackdowns like this in Beijing. Uh, the Russians clearly have been cracking down on their own domestic media, but foreign media, what they typically do is ban you. I'm banned right. um, from Russia. I'm on the sanctions list. Yeah, someone like Luke Harding uh, is a long-time badge of honor, Misha. <laughs> well, they be, yeah, they ban people. They tend to say, oh, well, you know, something wrong with your paperwork. You can't come back, right? And so to arrest someone uh, is is a big step. In terms of uh, Vladimir Karamutsa, you'd also point out that he was in the United States when the war started and mm-hmm. chose to go back uh, to Moscow and, and face the rest. I, I did an interview with his wife, Evgenia. I've been in touch with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can only imagine how she's feeling she's right amazing. now. That's right. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah extraordinary woman who's not really asked for the life of a freedom fighter very much was Vladimir was the I guess the 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 standard bearer of that and he she's taken that work up upon herself um and doing extraordinarily well and yeah everyone should read should read Vladimir's statement but in terms of what comes next 
I wonder whether or not I still think you know, I always look for the good signs maybe. Uh, the more Putin is cracking down domestically, I think it's a projection of weakness. I think he's feeling more and more concerned about how the war's going and you know, when things are going well, you don't really need to punish as severely as he is. And so I think I still believe that I don't see the Russians making any gains going forward here. I think whatever they've tried, they've already tried. Uh, I think the Ukrainians are the ones that are likely to make forward momentum. We don't know when, but probably in the next somewhere between the next two to six weeks we'll see something. And if there's a major route on the battlefield, which I think is quite possible for the Russians given the state of their army, their morale, the losses that have been inflicted upon them in, in Bakhmut, that I, I, I think Putin is... is trying to sandbag his political position domestically as much as anything else. And I think that's why he doesn't really care about what this means, um, how it's perceived internationally. It doesn't matter now. It's all about how it's perceived domestically, to your point. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think as horrific as it is, the fact that he feels obligated to give 25 years to, to Vladimir Karamuta in many ways shows what a big threat Vladimir Karamutsa is, right? Yeah, 100%. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if, if guys like him and Navalny weren't um, genuine threats, then you just leave them out there, right? If they're just these guys that say things you never have to worry about. So I think, you know, as often is the case with authoritarian regimes, the harder they squeeze, the weaker their position sometimes. Um, now, switching gears, we can come back to Ukraine, but... Switching gears to the United States, the intelligence leaks relates to Ukraine. But what do we make of this? Because uh, yeah, you're someone that's familiar with the world of intelligence. So I suppose what do we learn? But what does also tell us about the state of intelligence gathering in the United States? And then who does it help the most? Does it help Putin? Does it help others? What do we make of it? Because it's a pretty extraordinary thing. And then we'll talk about how it got out. <laughs> <laughs> and the suspect. But sticking with the, the what we learned and, and who it helps, um, I'd be curious your take on that. Okay, so on the in, we start with the intel itself, like the substance of of, of the classified material. Um, listen, I think if I I don't think it's that simple to say that in the end that Putin is going to win because. Anything that was revealed for Ukraine, and, and there are things that were revealed that don't look great, right? That they're running out of certain ammunition, that they had certain uh, battle plans uh, and the locations, for example, were identified or the plans for them. But that being said, it's, you know, it's a shame. But I think that the Ukrainian military and Zelensky can can pick their pick themselves up and then change course or change strategy and and apparently allegedly uh Zelensky came out i believe or or, or someone from a Ukrainian official said well we didn't trust uh, the US entirely anyway and so there are plans we've kept for ourselves that we're not part of this league that the United States doesn't even have and that may or may well, not be true well <laughs> when you look at the last big offensive the Ukrainians conducted in September, they surprised everyone, the United mm-hmm. States and its allies included, with the big push around Kharkiv in the northeast. So all the expectation was for an attack around the south, uh, around Kherson. So I, I think they are holding information back. So, But it is interesting that what we don't know is, because clearly they're not sharing everything, but some of it the United States, I think, is gathering irrespective of what the Ukrainians are telling them, right? 
That's right. And listen, they need to. I mean, the type of intelligence that I saw come out there is not dissimilar to what I used to see when I was in the government. It's information and analysis that helps inform policymakers and right and decision makers. You want the Defense Department seeing this type of intelligence so that they can make decisions based on um, they can make decisions related to how urgently they need to get ammunition to the Ukrainian military, um, what they can do to support Zelensky, right? So these are things that this is, this is pretty typical, uh, type of intelligence. And even when it gets, for example, um, what I would say now a little, almost what seems gossipy. So for example, intelligence we saw about Egypt. I mean, this, I don't know that this is gossipy. This is actually quite shocking, but that Egypt had planned to produce um, rockets in secret to secret or to send them secretly to the Russian regime. Egypt is one of the largest recipients of U.S. aid. And but because of that intelligence, apparently also the national security advisor was able to negotiate something where we would buy rockets and and other equipment from Egypt and then we would give it to Ukraine. That said, I think that opens up a whole Pandora's box on on um, how we deal with dictators and thugs over here in the United States. And I don't think it's tough enough, but that's a separate story. That said, or when they had, you know, analysis on Antonio Gutierrez, the UN Secretary General, uh, being soft, I think was what the quote was, being soft on Moscow. And I remember when I saw that, I thought, you know, what you think is beyond soft. The UN in general and UN institutions are soft with Putin and they're soft with most dictators. And, um, And that's because they have a different philosophy. They believe that they have to placate all these leaders in order to achieve their goals. And, um, that's not what that's not the philosophy I ascribe to, but that's what they do. That's what they do. Right. That's not surprising. So these, you know, so we, we if anything, I viewed it as at first when it all came out, a lot, some of it shocked me because I thought, what a shame that 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 Putin will read the on one hand things about plans that the Ukrainian that the Ukrainian military has for certain offensives. What a shame that those plans basically they can't do those anymore. That was the first thing I thought. But then I thought, okay, well they're gonna they're gonna work around it. Then I figured, what a shame that the Russian military, the intelligence that the US had gathered on the Russian military and, and the Russian regime, that oh, well, now we're going to, that that it might end up revealing sources and methods. And so whatever loophole exists, the Russians might close that loophole, therefore closing insight that we have. But uh, most experts say that it didn't really highlight sources and methods and uh, just that it was signals intelligence in general, but not how well, they got it. Right. Yeah. right? Well, so it's interesting that. about the signals. It's interesting that seemingly majority of the intelligence gathered from the Russians was all signals intelligence, i.e., listening in on people's conversations rather Mm -hmm. than spies. I think it tells you that it's very difficult now to get anyone near Putin that's not aligned totally to Putin because his purges of his regime have been so severe and then no one's really talking externally. Even, you know, the the FSVR head met with uh, Bill Burns, a CIA head in the last year, but generally speaking, there's not a lot of dialogue between the United States and Russia at the moment. So I think it's interesting that they're getting it principally um, uh, from signals intelligence. What did you make 
There's been controversies about this in the past. What did you make of this notion that the United States doesn't just spy on the bad guys, but spies mm-hmm. on its friends? I um, love what it. do we make of that? <laughs> I made a joke of this on my show because everyone got outraged. And the last time we had a leak, you know, everyone was outraged back then too. I think Angela Merkel got all pissed. You know, the, the last leak that had happened, the last yeah, major leak. Right? Uh-huh. And then this time it was the South Koreans. And I joked about it on my show. I was like, everyone spies on everyone. And we all know that. Um, I know, I know, I know for fact that the French are, are, you know, they attempt to spy on us all the time. The Israelis who are very close to the United States, it's, it's, it's one big effort to spy on, on us officials. And so it's, it's just kind of a known thing. And so a lot of their public, you know, everything they say publicly to me seems like a lot of pomp and circumstance and a lot of bravado because like they have to say it. Otherwise it would be embarrassing, but everyone spies on everyone. It's just how it goes. Because again, at the end of the day, you're trying to make the best decisions, the most informed decisions, even if they're with a friend and your intentions can be totally good, but, but you're always going to have the leg up if you know what that other official sitting across from you is thinking or, or what the goals of that person might be. And, you know, and you'll know how to approach them best. It's, it's, it's a boon for a negotiator. So <laughs> to me, I laughed about it. I made a lot of, uh, it, it was free content for me as a satirist <laughs> to make fun of. Um, but, uh, but you know, I was, I was, it does not surprise me whatsoever. I, it will, it will not change as well. Um, but, uh, what I found more fascinating was that the South Korean intelligence specifically was about trying to get them to send aid, military aid, lethal aid to Ukraine, even though that goes against their policy. And it was assessments on how maybe the U.S. could do it behind their back, sort of, and then also listening in on on their own internal conversations on who was in favor of that and who wasn't. And, you know, I cannot go into details. I can just tell you that it just didn't surprise me that much having worked in national security <laughs> in the U S government for 12 years. <laughs> it's a awkward truth um, of yeah. foreign policy and foreign relations. Um, but mm-hmm. when it gets exposed is enormously unbecoming for those that have been exposed. Right. But there's always very little outrage. Um, it's always kind of interesting. It's almost like in politics where um, someone gets uh, uh, breached on an infidelity and there's almost no condemning whatsoever from any of the politicians, which kind of tells you everything you need to know um, about their own morality and their own uh, relationships often, I find. They'll say, oh, well, it's a private matter, so I don't really want to say too much. It's like, oh, well, interesting. But um, so now this is an interesting one and I'm going to be real. I admit I've looked at it, but I am not the expert here, so I think you are. In terms of Sudan, mm-hmm. what's happening there? So we had what appears to be, you know, what could be the beginnings of a civil war there between two of the major generals in charge of the place. You know, the background to this is obviously there was a, I'll call it a people's revolution or some kind of coup in 2019 that knocked over the incumbent um dictatorship at the time there was hopes that there'd be a transition to democracy there's going to be a power sharing between the civilian government and the the military government uh, very, that didn't really happen then of course there was some kind of quasi civilian government in place that government gets knocked over in another military coup in 2021 and now we sort of don't really you know we're now in a situation where there's now outright hostilities between the two critical generals so one, 
are we um, you know are we on track to see a civil war in Sudan? And two, and I think perhaps not to minimise what's happening there, but more critically, what does this mean for global affairs? Because there are a lot of players with their fingers in the pie in Africa generally, uh, but particularly uh, in Sudan. So take us through that one, mate. Mm, so first of all, your summary was perfect. Um, it's a very complicated and long story. And you really just summed it up in a, in the easiest way, which is the, the root of this is a, is a fight between two generals who threw a coup together in 2021, but have been squabbling ever since. And the part that's so crazy is that, that officials that have been involved in peace negotiations with these two individuals and had seemed to believe that they would actually turn power over to a civilian government, including, by the way, people like Ambassador um, Jeff Feltman, who is I'm a big fan of, by the way, he's a friend of mine. Um, I worked very closely with him when I was in the government. He is the um, U.S. special envoy for the Horn of Africa. And so he obviously handles Sudan. And he had been speaking to one or both of these generals, I believe, hours before this happened. And, um, and they had had peace discussions a few days with the Brits a few days before this happened. And so this caught everybody by surprise. That said, it turned ugly really fast. And so to answer the first part of your question, I do believe that some kind of, some measure of violence, some real ugliness is going to linger that yes, we are in it for, you know, I don't want I don't want to call it the civil war just yet because I don't want to wish that on Sudan. But the fact of the matter is that it is a heavily armed state. It is a state that you have a lot of people who have joined one or the other side under these generals. And, um, and there are a lot of grievances and it was already as it was unstable. And, um, and, and, but I got, and I got, this is the part that really kills me. And that's that when I was catching up on this, on how these generals have behaved and the lies that they've said to their international partners, none of it surprised me because, and maybe because my, I have a, a unique, uh, view, but when I was in government, Sudan was a, a terrorist state. It was a, a safe haven for terrorists. Um, it had housed bin Laden for a very long time until international, until they kicked them ha- him out only because of international pressure. And I worked in counter illicit finance, as you know, for a very long time in counter terrorist financing. And the Sudanese government officials, this was under Omar al-Bashir, the Sudanese government officials were not exactly known for being, you know, upright standing citizens. <laughs> they were, they lied through their teeth. They were thugs. They were corrupt and they really didn't care about being on the up and up. And so this, this is what I'm used to for government officials over there, military officials over there. And so when I, when I was reading about this and, and catching up on it and, and there was a lot about how there is a view a little bit that international partners didn't hold those generals to account, that they didn't sanction their assets. They didn't twist their arms about their human rights abuses and repression. And it was because at the end of the day, they so badly wanted to have a political deal, you know, a diplomatic uh, peace deal where p- power would be uh, transitioned back to a civilian government. They wanted so badly for that to happen that they were willing to overlook a lot of their Fuggery, basically. And, um, and so it's not, you know, so that, that, I, that part I find really a shame, but I do expect this, unfortunately, to continue. And the reason, and I'll finish on this, the reason why this matters 
is because Sudan does pose it, 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 there, it's, we have deep, we in the United States, but the world too have deep, has, have deep national security interests in Sudan. And that is because we don't want to let it become a terrorist safe haven again. We don't want another bin Laden raising money there, uh, building a militia, perhaps uh, planning future 9-11s. We don't want to see that happen to Sudan. And because a lot of money has been poured into Sudan to help develop it, to help get it along the democratic path and, um, and progress has been made a little bit. We've, we in the United States removed their terrorist designation as a state sponsor of terrorism. We, um, uh, uh, under the Trump administration, the United States brokered a deal between Sudan and Israel for diplomatic negotiations, right? These are small but important steps. And to see that all go backwards, which it likely will, is um, is really, really frustrating. The other concern is, are we seeing a greater creep of failed states and lawlessness happening around this part of the world, right? You've got Yemen, which is basically a failed state that's been in the throes of all kinds of manner of violence there and it's very difficult to work out really. It's not a cogent story around one side versus another. It's just all kind of interesting there and it all came from a drought really, right, um, was what triggered so much of the violence there in terms of food shortages. So yeah, are you worried about this sort of creeping uh, nature of failed states from that Horn of Africa further into Africa, getting further from the northeastern parts and further south? Or is it something that um, those other states are able to withhold because they're not particularly strong states themselves when you look at Kenya and others, mm-hmm. Somalia, um, Uganda. Ethiopia, so, Eritrea. Right. These, this, right. The whole Horn of Africa, it's just problem compounded by another problem, compounded by another problem. And you're right. Like if, if you look at it from the 60,000-foot level and – because each one has a different story, but, but the fact is that they all have deep problems marred by conflict, by famine, and by Islamist extremists. And all of them suffer from that problem. Um, they don't all suffer from authoritarianism, but, but, um, but some of them do. And so it's, it does feel like, you know, it's when I, when I remember when I saw Jeff Feltman, Ambassador Feltman's position under the Biden administration as special envoy for the Horn of Africa. I remember thinking at the time, this was two years ago, thinking, Oh my God, I would not want that job. And, um, and, uh, and this only reinforces that because I think you're right that you're going to have failed states. And when you have failed states, not only by the way, especially now in this entire continent, not only does it open it up for, for mass repression and atrocities against innocent civilians and, and, um, and breeding grounds for terrorism. But also it creates an opportunity for Russia and China to swoop in, uh, just as they are in, um, across the rest of Africa, right. frankly. And right. that's also, it just, like I said, problem compounded by problem compounded by another problem. It's really, it's really sad. When you, well, again, right. If you, you know, for those who want to get their maps out, if you get out the map of the Horn of Africa and look where Djibouti is, which is where the Chinese Communist mm-hmm. Party has a major base, um, and you and you can start to see how these things are taking shape. Right, uh, you've got Yemen there, you've got Sudan not too far away, Ethiopia, Somalia, as we mentioned. So that creeping influence, you're right. That chaos allows for influence, and it also allows for the rise potentially of strong men leaders and governments that align themselves with these regimes. So it's Bloody worry. Um, now, speaking of things that are worrying, 
China, Taiwan. Let's start with my good friend Emmanuel Macron, who huge fan of. Um, you love his him. Visit, <laughs> <laughs> his visit to anyone that is wondering can read my last week's piece in the Financial Review where I discussed Macron's uh, descent into what I would describe as Chamberlainism. But anyway, so let's did you call him a wanker? In the in your piece, I unfortunately, I didn't get it past the sub editing. <laughs> um, but he is an enormous wanker. Um, <laughs> now, in terms of what we make of his trip to China, but then vis a vis what then has happened um, around Taiwan with the inverted commas war games, which is really a staged pretend invasion of Taiwan and and a, and a well, for lack of a better term, a, a blockade of the island of Taiwan. What do we make of the situation where it is right now? And, uh, you know, feel free to make any commentary about the French president's uh, interventions. Or ass-kissing is what I would call it. But yes. <laughs> the Okay, so where do we begin? We know that the Chinese, they did, so they did this three-day fake blockade, or it's really, it is a, it was a real blockade, but fake, you know, military exercises, these military exercises to fake an invasion um, for three days. And it took place right after the Taiwanese president who had been visiting Latin America and North America here in the United States. Um, after they met with Speaker of the House here, Kevin McCarthy, and right. um, and a few other lawmakers, I believe. And so they had the meeting, and this happened basically right after that. The Chinese came out with quotes that I found fascinating just as a foreign policy person, not because I agree with them, but just, but just because they were so insightful into how the Chinese think. And we know how they think, but to hear it verbatim said in 2023 that they viewed the Taiwanese president's actions as basically as a rogue element that this is the, that this is sovereign territory and that this is um, rogue elements colluding with external forces, the external forces being the United States in this case. And to hear them say it like that. And I was just like, you know, I think this is what they genuinely believe. And I'm not justifying it. I'm not excusing it. Just they do genuinely believe this. And that's what drove their, their military exercises for three days. And sometimes it feels like a lot of muscle flexing and, you know, sitting here, sometimes I just look at it and think like, oh my God, you know, get over yourself. However, this is a real threat. And, uh, the Chinese regime, and I say the same thing about Putin, by the way, they're not known for, um, having a poker face. You know, that, you know, the, when, when they, when yeah. they, when they issue threats, I would take them very seriously. And I do find in the United States, unlike last year, there seems to be a growing, sentiment that some kind of escalation between China and Taiwan is growing more likely and and this year in particular. So the Council on Foreign Relations, for example, put out a report of the national security threats they see this year, and they viewed escalation between the two as, quote, moderately likely this year, which surprised me um, because last year I interviewed somebody uh, from there who said that no way was it going to happen. And so, so, when, so you say, when you say escalation, does that mean kinetic warfare between China and Taiwan? Or no, well, they, they define it as it's very broad. Escalation can be very broad. And 
Um, so it, yes, it could include that, but, um, it, it could include also almost getting to that point. And there was in the, in the three days of exercises that just took place, there was a, um, I guess I'll call it confrontation between a Taiwanese ship and a Chinese ship. And, um, where the Taiwanese ship said, you need to leave. And I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the water zone. It has a certain name and said, you need to leave this zone you're encroaching or we will be, quote, forced to expel you. And the Chinese ship responded first with this rhetoric that I just told you, the same thing, that um, first it said, you know, this zone doesn't exist. Um, these are all Chinese waters. And then next, um, we will do whatever we need to ensure that no one colludes with outside forces and that we maintain peace and stability in these waters. Um, and so the Chinese ship responded. Um, and so situations like this, this is, I think, what the Council on Foreign Relations is pointing to. If you have situations like that, then the chances for a miscalculation um, are very high. The more exercises you have, the more situations of this kind you have, then, then the more that can happen. There was, by the way, also a U.S. ship was involved. There was a U.S. Navy ship that was also in that area. Right. Um, and um, and they were monitoring. Like freedom of navigation That's ex- right. exercise. Right? That's, That's right. I mean, one of the things that... It- to your point about escalation, and unfortunately, one of the many things that are unfortunate about Xi Jinping's government's approach to these things is their refusal to really engage in the kind of communications that you'd expect from superpowers. So what we saw during the Cold War, the so-called red phone, in case something happens to stop a cascading effect of escalation into escalation and, and, and things getting out of hand. Um, you know, for example, when... The, the Chinese Communist Party's balloon was floating over Montana. <laughs> US officials couldn't get their counterparts on the phone, right? The Chinese just pretend like it's not happening. And that is really dangerous. Um, and so their inability to communicate is a, you know, a worrying sign. And unfortunately, the United States has made an, a lot of offers to try to formalise this. And the Chinese don't want to do that because, to my reading of it, at the moment, they think it favours them playing in this grey zone where they can continue to push the boundaries, push the boundaries and see what they can get away with without major pushback from their neighbours or even, you know, even the United States. So, um, you know, I, I I agree with you that it's a, it's an, an enormous concern. Um, certainly 2027 seems to be the window that many people believe there that's could right. be conflict. In Taiwan, I don't know why they've picked that not. time, but yes, that's right. <laughs> it's, well, I, no, is so that something that the Chinese regime said? No, it's a term. So it's the so-called Davidson window, which is an Admiral Davidson from the United States, where he was giving testimony to a congressional inquiry. Oh, that's right. That's right. I remember now. Mm-hmm. The likely time would be twenty twenty-seven because uh, that's when the relative strength of the U.S. Navy and the uh, People's Liberation Army Navy kind of intersect to some degrees. Basically, the US has got a lot of old ships they're trying to replace very quickly, not re- able to replace them fast enough, and the Chinese are pumping out a lot at the same time. And then the US will catch up again, but there's a sort of a, a, an intersecting period there where it's believed that the Chinese military might have the upper hand, at least in the Taiwanese theatre in and around uh, China's waters there. For those of you who are feeling really depressed about the world, other people will tell you that the likely time 
that uh, the uh, Chinese Communist Party might stage an invasion of Taiwan is during the 2024 U.S. presidential elections. Great. Uh, so the, the theory <laughs> of that being uh, perhaps Donald Trump is the Republican candidate, perhaps there's a big, um, uh, you know, situation relating to allegations of, you know, voter fraud or whatever, who knows, civil unrest potentially. U.S. is sort of largely not able to govern itself or is very domestically focused through that period and then uh, China stages an invasion. I still don't think it's likely. I don't um, think it's likely this year think, either, by the way. Well, yeah. I mean, it's really my, not this my, year. But My personal view is that given the disaster of Ukraine, um, I, I, I think it's a lesson to the Chinese that they don't need to do it the way that the Russians have attempted to do it. But you know what? One of the, all the great follies of history are often pre, you know, predated by, oh, well, they, they just got it wrong. We could have done it differently. We, we're better than they are. They're, just, they're not very good. Mm. Um, and I can imagine that advice coming from uh, you know, hawkish generals in the Chinese military. Uh, so anyway. Uh, you know, though, I will. I, it's a perfect to add on to this very quickly. It's a perfect connection to Macron because today uh, I just read before taping that the Chinese ambassador to Paris said today that um, today Sunday that um, uh, that this, the countries that are former Soviet Union um, aren't shouldn't be recognized by international law anyway. And saying that is a slap right. in the face That's to Macron. Yeah, it's, it's, right. I mean, it's, it's absurd. <laughs> and saying that is a slap in the face to Macron, who literally just went to Beijing and ass kissed um, President Xi, obviously. But it's also, to me, I read it as very telling of. That's them projecting their own views on Taiwan, and you know, trying to stir the pot and and try to. Um, push this talking point now. Maybe this is going to be the new talking point we're going to be hearing from the Chinese government over and over again. That well, and also it's an endorsement of Vladimir Putin's view of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yes. And that's unfortunate. I mean, this is the thing. This is why I was very annoyed at what Macron had said because ultimately, unfortunately, for those that don't want to believe, to your point about what this dictators club is saying and what they're doing history ends up making a fool of you, right? And unfortunately for Macron, it's just happening at a faster and faster rate. Those that said there was no threat 10 years ago, that's aged very badly. But comments barely the last months now before, um, you know, either the Chinese regime, the Russian regime go do something ever more egregious um, and violate whatever a person said, oh, well, they'll never cross this boundary or they'll never do this. And, and sure enough, right? So now speaking of the Chinese government crossing boundaries, what do you make of this secret police stations around the world and the bullying of would appear Chinese diaspora living inside other nations? Oh my God. Um, I'm so excited you asked about this. I didn't know we were going to talk about this. I love this topic. <laughs> um, I had put the Chinese regime on my shit list on, on my show a few months ago for these secret Chinese police stations that are apparently all over the world, but one had been discovered in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And it was there, and it apparently also offered a few other services here and there, but its purpose was to monitor and threaten dissidents, Chinese-American dissidents, uh, or Chinese nationals, and or Chinese nationals based in the United States. And 
and I'll give you an example that a lot of the articles, some of the articles are are missing, but we had a situation here in the United States a few years ago where at the beginning of the pandemic, a famous Chinese American artist did a sculpture of President Xi's head and did it in the shape of a coronavirus. And it was in Liberty Park, California. And um, so if you can imagine his head and it kind of looks like a coronavirus, right? And it was well, set ablaze. things coming out of it a little. Yes, exactly. Right. And it was yeah, set right, ablaze. Right. It was set on fire in the middle of the night, like a month after it was erected. And I think it was made from wood. I can't totally remember, but all I know, it was burnt to the ground. And... Um, an investigation proved that it was Chinese police that had, that were living in the United States, um, and that were also using others to help them. But, you know, in Chinese, those affiliated with Chinese police. And that is an example of what this police station did. They would locate Chinese Americans physically where they were, where they were located in the United States. And then they would take moves to monitor or threaten them. In this case, they actually did something to destroy something, but they also would, for example, uh, threaten their families back home, right? They would say, if you speak, then we're going to threaten your family back home and so on. And so this is what they were doing. And it was discovered. And now this uh, last week, Two U.S. citizens who were leading this police station and were in touch with the Chinese regime in in establishing it and in running it, two U.S. citizens were arrested. And it's the first arrests of its kind related to these Chinese police stations that are all over the world. And um, and so hopefully... I guess the good news is this, if there's a silver lining, aside from the fact that it is a, it is an awful example of the Chinese regime's way of exporting its repression and it's beyond unacceptable. Um, but at least I think I do believe that it sends a message that, um, if it, if it happens here at least, and I think that I, I, I I think this would be the case for many countries as well, that they will hunt them down and, and, and find them to prevent this type of behavior. Um, so I think the silver lining is that they shut it down and, you know, hopefully it won't, uh, won't happen again. I don't think they won't try. I think that well, like the right. Iranian regime, these are regimes that they, um, they don't give a shit and they'll try other ways. You know, they already exploit our tech companies for monitoring and, and threatening dissidents, but um, at least they've closed one loophole right now. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's something you see. Um, I mean, it's a it's a tactic that the Chinese Communist Party uses, which is you know the United Front, whatever you want to call it. That they literally bully, as you put it, bullying. They could be Australian citizens of Chinese descent. I was going to say you must have it in Australia, Australia too, because there's so many oh, dissidents no, totally. in Australia no, from who are Chinese Aussies. Yeah, so many. The and and mm-hmm. the monitoring of students as well, right? So student populations that you know, come here and then just making sure they don't turn up to a pro-Taiwan demonstration or don't turn up to things of that nature because, uh, you know, they it, it's very troubling. It's one thing when an authority – authoritarian regime is, uh, you know, surveilling and bullying its people at home. We obviously, that's terrible. But when it's happening inside our democracy, mm-hmm. it's enormously alarming. Um, yeah, yes. Yeah, that's why it's, it's good. Deadline. That's why it's good to see action for it. I mean, I hate that they felt so bold 
as to create this police station and, and, and threaten right. people living here. But I'm hoping that there will be these opportunities over and over again and to, to communicate to the Chinese regime or other regimes that that type of behavior is not going to be acceptable. I don't think, I think with this one, they, they had a great opportunity. Um, I would, I would say in the United States, the Iranian regime is, is even worse with this behavior and they really don't care if they're caught, when they're caught, when they have individuals who are caught, planning assassinations and such. They just, re- they could be in the middle of nuclear negotiations and they don't care. So I don't know that we're communicating the message well enough. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's outrageous. It's outrageous. And, um, I don't know. I'm, I'd be curious to see if these arrests, if we see a difference in this type of behavior on the part of the Chinese regime in democracies around the world after this. It's enormously brazen, enormously brazen. Mm-hmm. It's one thing they often use other front groups, right? Like, uh, you know, groups that are notionally pro-Chinese government or, you know, the peaceful reunification of China with Taiwan, front groups, these sorts of things, um, they use those to monitor. But when they're essentially would appear to be having government-affiliated police that are basically undertaking police-type behaviour in other countries, extraordinary. Uh, So it's something that we need to be really, really aware of uh, and no doubt... I'm sure there's a, a big look at that in every country right now. Now, we go all day here, but it is late where you are. <laughs> so it's all right where I am, but you've got to get you to bed, Hagar. <laughs> um, so you're John Dory. What do you got for us this week? What is the story? I'm curious. You always have a good one. So what have you got for us this week? I do have a good one this week. Um a story I'm just totally outraged about, you know, and this is it goes on the same lines as U.S. citizens helping authoritarian regimes like you had the Chinese police situation. Um, and it's a perfect topper to the story when we talked about the intelligence leaks. But um, the U.S. is allegedly investigating a uh, an American woman. She is from New Jersey and lives in Washington state. And she's being investigated for further spreading the classified material from the Pentagon. Okay, great, fine. The, what makes the whole story insane, aside from the fact that if that's true, that, you know, I is, is, is treasonous and, and, and irresponsible, especially since she is also a former U.S. Navy vet, or sorry, formerly with the U.S. Navy. She's a U.S. Navy veteran. Um, it's, that she was discovered thanks to folks who were trying to unmask um, their unmask who this person was. She has she runs a pro Russia propaganda channel on right. YouTube, on Telegram, on Twitter, I believe, and she goes by the name. Davushka Donbass, and she has a phony accent and pretends she lives in Luhansk in Ukraine, whereas she is really Sarah Bills, originally from New Jersey, living in Washington State. I don't know how you go from an accent talking like this to talking like this, but she does. And it's <laughs> it's so absurd. And she was outed, by the way. Sorry, I have to add how she was outed. She was outed because of her side hustle. She has a side business selling tropical fish. Fine. Niche. <laughs> super niche. And she was outed because she did a podcast uh, that focuses on fish tanks, 
which, you know, apparently it's super popular, which as a foreign policy person who's, who fights for every subscriber makes me a little angry that there's a fish tank podcast that's so popular. But anyway, she appeared on this podcast for fish tanks to talk about fish tanks and a, a group that was trying to find who Davushka Donbass was, a, a, you know, a pro-Ukrainian group. Somebody happened to see this podcast because it was videotaped as well and saw that it looked like her and that it was in the same room that she films her other stuff from, which is beyond a rookie mistake. But anyway, and that's how she was outed, which I think is just so all around bad. So she admitted to the Wall Street Journal that she is behind Devushka Donbass, but that apparently a bunch of people are and that she's not the one who spread the classified material. I don't really care at this point. You know, I mean, I think the classified material is 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 terrible and I and I trust the US government to find and apprehend those people and um and I'm glad they are. Um I'm just so outraged that there are US citizens and I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but that there are that there are US citizens who would deliberately engage in such deceptive behavior to push propaganda for foreign adversaries. And, and it's just, it's shameful and it's disgusting and it's, and it's so ignorant too. And it just, it makes me so angry and embarrassed. I could go on, but anyway, that's my story for the week. It's a wild story. I mean, the fact that she got caught with the fish tank thing is just unbelievable. Yeah. Um, Right. (laughs) Pushing. Yeah, so Devushka Donbass, a Donbass girl, um, you know, she's pushing, pretending that she's this pro-Russian Ukrainian living in the contested parts of Donbass and peculiar. It'd be interesting to see how she got wrapped up in it all. That's not clear yet. As my right, how she got started, you mean? I don't know. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's very peculiar. I mean, one thing we forgot to talk about, and I just want to quickly touch on it, but is is – the guy who leaked the the classified material. Oh yeah. The bizarre thing about that was he's not a spy, right? And and not a you know he wasn't like Ed Snowden, some kind of whistleblower, and he wasn't someone that the Russians or someone else had flipped to hit their side and said get us this or get us that. He's just kind of this like loser nerd. Mm-hmm. Who wanted to Discord. show show off his access? Wanted to show his mates in this little closed group of twenty people. Oh, look what I can get! Crazy. Not only Staggering. that, it apparently I saw today that um, that he had been sharing this material as early as days or weeks after the Ukraine war started, and so right. just to show you, like this, that his, which further underscores your point that that. It's not like he was, and I, you know, I don't want to, I don't know for sure, but, but it doesn't appear as though he was doing it for spying reasons or because he had some kind of ideological goal. Because it took so long to get anywhere, right? Yeah. It was, he just didn't disseminate. Right. He just wanted to show off to his little punk friends. (laughs) Right. It's, and, you know, and we could talk. How does a 21 year old guy get access to these? That was going to be my next point. Yeah, that was going to be my next point. Um, If you saw the, it doesn't make any sense. Honestly, it doesn't make any sense. If you saw the hoops that everyone else normally typically has to go through to have clearance to see this type of intelligence, it's, it's, it's you, it's on a need to know basis. And so, so for example, when I say that I was at the U S government and I was that, that, that the type of intelligence that, that this guy leaked, that, um, that the type of it didn't surprise me 
Sure. But if I were in the U.S. government still doing what I was doing, which was which was really for U.S. foreign policy toward the Middle East and at a certain point terrorist financing, um, the, the intel I would see would be very specific to what I was working on because it was on a need to know basis. And that's in part how they controlled it. So you had you would go through the measure to get your security clearance, which was a very long and arduous process. It, for me, it took a long time. Um, but I'm of Lebanese descent and I have family in Syria and Colombia and Venezuela. And as my boss used to say, if I could get a secure clearance, security clearance, anybody could, which <laughs> is funny, but maybe not so funny now. <laughs> but but um but the you know, it was on a need to know basis. It wasn't something readily thrown around. Now in, in the intelligence community, maybe it's a bit different if you work for the intelligence community. In my mind, when I saw his position and I saw where he was and I saw his age, to me, though that type of position, the reason he might have had access to that is because he might have been the person who was the lowest on the totem pole, simply preparing the briefing book for the bosses, right? So what I mean is literally the person printing the intelligence out, putting it into a binder and giving it to senior officials. Now, I can also tell you the White House doesn't even do that anymore. It's on a tablet so that you don't have it printed out. And um, in th- this case was obviously different because photos of it were taken. And so it's, it's unfortunate because every time there's a leak, Everybody in the U.S. government, all the security folks will say, you know, oh, we're going to do this to change it. and We're going to do that. And we're going to improve it this way. You know, Ed Snowden, for example, was a contractor. A contractor should never have been privy to the type of intelligence detailing sources and methods the way he was. He was a contractor. He wasn't even inside the U.S. government, um, fully at least. And... Um, so, you know, they have to, they have to, they have to fix this situation. They have to keep it on an even tighter, a tighter group. And they really have to, make people prove that they that they understand the gravity of leaking this information and that they prove, you know, that they're responsible enough to handle it. But this is an embarrassment for the U.S. I wouldn't be surprised if countries after this are shy in sharing stuff with us. That doesn't mean we won't get it, but that does mean that they might be shy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we go back to our early conversation about uh, how it might what be the U.S. gets. But, yeah. <laughs> right. Mine... This is just one that I'm putting just a kind of a, a thumbnail in. I reckon we, we the royal we, need to be more concerned about uh, increasing collaboration between Saudi Arabia, China, Russia, even Iran when it comes to this kind of BRICS plus. Now, for those who don't know, BRICS is you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China was kind of coming together maybe as a different uh, alignment of economies at one point now obviously things have changed a little bit india being the little bit of the odd one out there but i just think there's a big push on amongst particularly the chinese and the russians who try to break up trade globally um around u.s denominated trade so basically trying to displace u.s dollar uh as the world's global reserve currency now They've been duchessing the Saudis. Saudi Arabia has signed up to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is, I mean, basically China's view of the world in terms of trade, et cetera, how they've been trying to rewrite the rules. And just interesting to me, you might be starting to see the beginnings of a building here of an alignment that is troubling. And the reason for that, why does Saudi Arabia matter to be joining in with the BRICS? Well, when you consider much of the world's trade globally is oil, and uh, if you can start to slowly get some of the big oil 
exporting nations uh, to be not needing to trade oil in US dollars. It's just a way of pulling a thread and pulling a thread and pulling a thread. And so, you know, the, this bad guys club, they're, they're desperate to try to create their own economic system. I think particularly the Chinese Communist Party are horrified at what's happened to Russia vis-a-vis the sanctions um, and how severe that those have been and they're trying to find a way around it and their view is breaking the stranglehold that US dollar has uh, on on global trade would be one way around it. Anyway, so look, we're not quite there yet, but it's the beginnings, I think, of a troubling alignment. What do you think about that? I just, I've noticed it and I'm like, man, that's not great. Yeah. And uh, the more coordination you're seeing around OPEC, I think the Chinese are kidding themselves in terms of ever being a, a reserve currency because there's just not enough trust in the regime when it comes to capital transparency, forgetting about whether or not they're authoritarian. People just don't trust moving money in and out, and that's critical to being a, a reserve currency. But, um, you know, if the US, for example, did something crazy like defaulted uh, this year, uh, which, you know, the Republican House no doubt will play chicken on, um, it's a real big worry. So I was putting that one down as one to keep watching and I'm uh, watching with growing concern. Yeah, the, I I always get concerned in general when I see these types of um, competitive, if you will, alliances. I will say right. when the Chinese brokered that peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which we talked about on the last episode, I really didn't take it seriously at all. Um, to me, it was just China trying to act like the uh, global power broker where there was a U.S. vacuum. And um, the Saudi and Iranian governments loathe each other and have for decades. Um, but then I saw that it was potentially resulting in a peace deal in Yemen. And there have been thousands of efforts to make maybe hundreds of efforts to have a peace negotiation in Yemen to, to finalize this war. But everyone I speak to in Washington believes that the latest round, this current round really will result in a long-term ceasefire. And there are many, many reasons for that, that don't have to do with the Chinese regime. But I can't imagine that, that brokering that negotiation between Saudi Arabia and Iran didn't help. And the reason I'm telling you all this, the reason I paint it in this picture is that I was looking at it and I was thinking to myself, well, you know, I really, really don't like these type of like, you know, adversary alliances. And then on the other hand, I'm like, but wait a minute, but peace is really good. We all want peace. We don't want these civilians to be suffering. Mm. And that is a very specific, that is a very, very specific example. I know. Um, and, and I, and, and I stand by that. I really hope that, that Yemen does see peace and that the people see peace. But, um, but I am concerned about it. And I do think that the post, the world we live in, in a post Ukraine war world, we're seeing that evolve rapidly. And, um, I mean, more and more, every, I feel like every, every time you and I have an episode, we have more and more examples pointing to these, this, the world dividing into two in many ways. Um, I am not as worried about it on the currency front. Now, that said, it's also 10 p.m. and you're saying words like currency and capital controls and blah, blah, blah. And so this, <laughs> it's a late to talk economics, but I could be naive or overly confident that in that. But, um, or I'm just oh, talking I'm not about it's a simple thing to do. Yeah. But they are desperate to try to 
change the flow of trade, right? That is for and sure. It's just interesting. Nothing's done by accident, right? Mm-hmm. Why Saudi Arabia? Why Iran? Well, yeah. other than the fact that they trade a lot of oil, they're not that particularly relevant to uh, you know, Russia and China, right, in particular. Mm-hmm. Nothing's done by accident. It's much like Solomon Islands was not chosen by China to do a deal with on a security basis by random. It's because it happens to sit on a critical choke point for Australia's entry, right? So I think that that's what they're trying to do. Whether that they can achieve, it's a separate proposition, but it's certainly um, – these alignments, you can see these shifts and it's just yet another one where they're trying to creatively think of ways to try to increase the amount of trade globally that is denominated in any other currency. Mm -hmm. And one of the big ones is oil, right? Yeah. It's all traded principally in US dollars. And if it's not, that's a big chunk of global trade that you've sort of shifted. Anyway, it's a pocket theory, but one that I think we should be watching more closely Given you mentioned the time, I'm going to let you go before this economics lecture goes on any longer. Um, <laughs> it's perfect to put me Thank you for joining us. We've gone way over time as always. We've gone way over time as always. But um, good chatting to you, mate. We'll catch up soon. Likewise. Thank you for having me always. I love our conversations. G'day, Diplomates fans. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. If you're loving Hagar's work, please uh, check out the show notes. You can follow Hagar or the Oh My World show very easily on any of the social channels. Or, of course, you can subscribe to her show on YouTube. You'll learn a lot. You'll be entertained. It's fantastic stuff. Now, I've got a question here. Questions from Jeremy. Jeremy says, Misha, what happens uh, if Erdogan loses the upcoming Turkish election in May and chooses not to accept the result? Should we be worried about this? Well, good question. Firstly, so the election's coming up in i think may 14 in turkey it's a big election Uh, turkey clearly is a nato country it's an important country but also erdogan straddles this weird world somewhere between the dictators and the democracy world Um, he's gradually ever so slightly been edging turkey that way now right now he's behind uh, in the polls in turkey Uh, now they've got a complicated political system but basically Of the two major candidates, he's polling second. But if neither candidate gets 50% in the presidential elections, uh, there'll be a runoff. So we'll see where it gets to. But in terms of the question, yes, well, firstly, we should always be concerned about whether or not um, a leader accepts peaceful transfer of power. That's critical, absolutely central uh, to democracy. And unfortunately, it's becoming a little bit of a thematic now. We saw what happened last year with Lula. Clearly, the January 6th situation with Trump supporters was the most egregious example of that. But uh, so we should be concerned. Unfortunately, Turkey also has a history where power does not transfer all that neatly, tends to be done. Unfortunately, uh, goes very badly in the end for whoever's in power, typically when you look at the history. So hopefully, well, firstly, we'll see what the result is. Uh, Erdogan is always trying to make it easier for himself to win. But on the assumption that he didn't win, we should hope and prevail upon him uh, to, to take it on the chin if he loses. If he wins, well, then it's uh, you know, then it's his to keep. But I, I think it's concerning because, as I said, Turkey is a NATO country and it has a lot of significance geopolitically. It straddles the world between Europe, 
uh, and into the Middle East, into the Arabic world. And so I think it's absolutely vital when you look at the sea lanes, the controls. And so we should be enormously concerned. I'm not a huge fan of Erdogan. If he wins, well, that's the outcome. But if he loses and holds on, uh, well, that would be the end of Turkey, even as a pretend democracy, as some would argue it is right now. So a good question. We should watch it very closely. It's coming up in about less than three weeks' time. Pay very close attention to that, kids. Uh, it'll tell us a lot about future geopolitical events. Otherwise, if you've uh, listened up until now, please rate, review the podcast. It really does help. Thank you for all your support. Show's going really well. I'll see you soon. Bye for now. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.